Thank you. Please have a seat. Our reading uh, this morning is from Matthew 15. We'll be looking at verses 21 to the end of the chapter. One of the things that really excites me about about Scripture and about being part of the Kingdom of God is this consistent message that it has that regardless of who we are, or where we're from, or how skilled we are, or how unskilled we might be at some things, of our education, of our family history, of our genetics, of any of those things, each of us is precious to God. Um, two weeks ago, almost at the house groups, when we were looking at Psalm 8, we were looking at um, one of the things it speaks about and alludes to and pushes us towards as a conclusion where we realize that we, as people, are the epitome of what God has created. Think of that this morning as you sit there. You are the epitome of what God has created. That's something to behold, isn't it? And regardless of what our culture says and what magazines might tell us and what celebrities might look like and all these other messages that are, that are so often around us, each of us is the epitome of what God has made. And of course, Psalm 139 really unpacks that message as well. We, as Christians, know a God who loves every single person. Everyone. Even the people that, if we're really honest, we don't like all that much. And there'll be different names that come to our minds as we say that. There are people that, if we were really honest, we would rather God didn't really touch. It might be too confusing. It might be too messy. We don't necessarily know the answers to things. But yet we, we have a gospel which tells us that it's going to get pushed everywhere, regardless of race or gender, anything. God loves them and wants to have that relationship with them. Each person is precious. Each person is the epitome of what he has made. Each person, he was present as they were pulled together in their mother's womb. All of this we believe, we hold to, we understand. And if you've read anything of what Matthew 15 says, you will now have a wee question. Because we come to some pretty tricky verses this morning. Verses that I'm going to read. So it's Matthew 15 beginning at verse 21. And it says to us this morning, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's tables. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there, and he walked beside the lake of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And he put him at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd wondered, and when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, they glorified the God of Israel. 
then Jesus called his disciples to him and says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said, Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them. And he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were a thousand men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got in the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So what I painted at the start and and what we hear in those verses, we might find that just a little bit jarring. Do those verses... Sorry, I'm just going to navigate around this so I can actually see that my clicker's working. I'm like skating. Hopefully I don't fall because I normally do when I skate. Do we find those verses a little bit jarring? Do they fit with who we perceive Jesus to be? As I spoke at the start about the kingdom of God and all that it stands for and the, the, that message of, and it is very much a message of equality, a message where God loves everyone and is drawing everyone in. And then we come up against verses such as these, where Jesus is saying things that we might struggle to make sense of, where Jesus seems to be ignoring somebody. These verses can make us feel a bit uneasy. And, and you know what? Sometimes that's actually okay. But we're going to go on an adventure with these verses and through the whole of the latter part of this chapter and what it tells us about the kingdom of God. What it tells us about Jesus. What it tells us about ourselves and the people around us as well. So I've called this a hope for all, which you might be surprised at considering the first verses, which are no doubt the ones that are primarily sitting in all our heads this morning. They're controversial verses. So I've entitled the first part of this, The Unwelcome Blessed. And I want you to sit with me on this little journey that we're going to go on with these verses, because these are, they're controversial verses, very controversial verses in a lot of ways. I read one view of these verses, which was, they were called a sinister retro addition to the teachings and ways of Jesus. Now that's quite an interesting statement. A sinister retro addition, which basically means that some less than pleasant person, because sinister of course means very not very unpleasant, has added these in at a later date and they weren't actually done by Jesus himself. Now that is not going to be um, convincing to very many of us here. Others have said that they are abhorrent because Jesus is here calling, it seems anyway, this woman a dog. And we can kind of see why, because that, that would sit in our mind. The, the language that, that Jesus is using here is insulting language. We can't get around it. It's derogatory language. If we called anyone today a dog, I would hope we were going to get slapped in the face, because you would deserve it, okay? But it was, it was stronger language back then. It was language that was used in a very cont- contemptuous way to describe Gentiles. And I'm going to speak a lot about Jews and Gentiles this morning. And if you're not familiar with that terminology, Jew, well, that's quite clear. It means somebody who's Jewish. Gentile was the word they had for anyone that wasn't Jewish. So it's, it's an umbrella term for anyone that isn't following the Jewish religion. So if you're wondering what Gentile means, that's what it means, because I am going to use that a fair bit this morning, and I can't keep correcting myself. Um, so that was a word that was described to 
for, for, for Gentiles. It was, it was a word that very hardened Jews would use to be dismissive, to be derogatory, to be insulting towards those that they would see as unclean, those that they wouldn't have any communication with, those that they wouldn't dine with, those that they wouldn't really want to be around. And Jesus here, we see him using that word. So on a surface level, this is derogatory. This is insulting. And then we can also add into the mix that Matthew is very careful here. He tells us that, tells us that this was a Canaanite woman. So this was not just any Gentile either. This was a Canaanite Gentile. This was somebody who represented one of the, the peoples that Israel was consistently at war with in the Old Testament. This was a race they didn't like at all. And this is the woman that is before Jesus. Now she wasn't popular. She was a Gentile. She was part of a hated race. And she finds herself before Jesus and she recognizes that here is hope in the person of Jesus Christ and she is crying out to him. And it might and probably should unsettle us on, on our first glance when we see that his response to her is to ignore her. He ignores her pleas. And so extensive were these pleas that eventually the disciples are saying, hey, can you do something about this? She's constantly at us. It's interesting, they don't actually tell him to answer her pleas or to, to do anything. They just want her gone one way or another. So, so they want her gone and they're asking Jesus to do something about it. And he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now what Jesus is doing there is he's essentially stating part of what his mission is. His mission was primarily to the, to the people of Israel and it was that way because that was fulfilling promises that God had made. It was the fulfillment of those promises first to the people of Israel and then a greater fulfillment to the world as well. But whether the woman heard what Jesus says or not, she then kneels before him. And that word kneels isn't just simply like us kneeling down and we're going to tie a shoelace or something like that. That word kneels as a word very much of worship. It's a word of adoration. Okay? So it's not just simply that she's kneeling because she, she wants to make it hard to get moved out of the way. She's kneeling before Jesus because she is, in, it, in fact she is, she is worshipping him. This is one of the very first instances we see of people worshipping Jesus and it comes from a Canaanite woman. So she is before him and she's worshipping him and she's crying out to him. She's begging him for hope. And what Jesus says to her here is, it is not right for me to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Difficult, unsettling words that Jesus is using here. But what's really interesting here is her response because it seems actually it's gotten worse. She's finally before Jesus. The door appears to be slammed shut. It doesn't appear that he's willing to do anything. But he's using this derogatory language. And there's so much controversy around these words, but yet then something remarkable happens because her yes, Lord, at this point isn't some meek acceptance of what Jesus has said. She takes what Jesus has said. And she uses that to get the blessing that she sought. 
So Jesus sets out a framework here. She enters into that framework and she gets the blessing that she has been seeking after. So her answer is that even dogs get crumbs from their master's tables. Now, let's be clear here, she is not embracing the status of dog here. She's not declaring Jews her masters here. What she's doing is she is seeing what Jesus has said. She's working within the parameters of that. And she displays this remarkable faith. And the result of that is, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter is healed instantly. Her daughter is healed instantly. Jesus is amazed at what's going on. Great is your faith, he says and it will be done. She sees in Jesus as one of hope, and she gets this very peculiar response. And I think the question we're all asking, having explored it a little bit, is, well, what's going on? What's Jesus up to there? How can we make some sense of those verses? Because they can be very unsettling verses. One of the things a lot of the commentaries state about that these verses is that one of the things that Jesus is likely doing here is he's using irony. Because what he is actually doing, okay, is he's, he is stating as he dialogues with this woman exactly what some of the people around him would be thinking about her. So as she comes as a Canaanite woman, as a Gentile woman into this situation, very likely the disciples, disciples themselves would have been thinking things along these lines. There certainly would have been others that would have been thinking these kind of perceptions about this woman. So what he does is he takes all of that and he drags it straight out into the light. And whether there was a smile on his face and a twinkle in his eye, we're, we're not told in these verses, although I really like the phrase of William Barclay, um, a well-known um, commentator and theologian, who says, we can be quite sure that the smile on Jesus' face and the compassion in his eyes robbed the words of all insult and bitterness. I'll repeat that again. We can be quite sure that the smile on Jesus' face and the compassion in his eyes robbed... Jesus' words of insult and bitterness. And this is one of the tricky things when you read something in black and white. Well, we have all had the phenomenon. Has anyone ever received a text message or an email and we have read it the wrong way? Sometimes that happens. It can happen a lot. We get a message and we read it and of course we're thinking one thing and somebody else is meaning something quite different. And... Well, we respond as to how we feel. So we might have got a text message or, I don't know, Snapchat if you're young and, and hip or whatever else we're using these days. Um, and we take it one way and it's not intended that way at all. It's one of the challenges when we're reading text is we, we read into what we think is going on. But what we also have to consider is well, what, would be, what is consistent with Jesus. And Jesus is one who's never shown an issue with race. Not substantially. Jesus is one that when confronted with a centurion, a Roman centurion, praised his faith. He didn't mention his race. It wasn't relevant. So why all of a sudden is this so substantially relevant? Jesus must be doing something. There must be a point that he is making here. Well, the point that he is making is that he's dragging all these perceptions out into the light and he is confronting the woman with them. She would have known these. Nothing that Jesus is saying here would have been a surprise to her. 
She would have lived this stuff her entire life if she's living in predominantly Jewish areas. So he drags it all out into the light. And she gives them this amazing response. And what that essentially does is it allows Jesus and this woman to get to a place where what happens is that somebody's faith gains the blessing of God. It's her faith, not her race, not her sex, not her history, that gains the blessing of God here. So Jesus walks through this whole thing with her. And the end result is what we know to be gospel now, that those who believe are those that receive that inheritance and blessing from God. And that's where he takes her to. Because one of the things we have to acknowledge here is that in a sense, Jesus sets himself up to lose this conversation. Because he starts off ignoring her. He then restates his mission. He then says what appears to be extremely derogatory things to her. And she takes all of that and she gains the blessing that it appears Jesus didn't want to give her. Something is going on there. Something substantial. And we need to take note of that. Jesus drags all this stuff out into the light. And into that light. And into the toxicity of some of that light. He brings gospel. He brings hope. For the woman's faith. Brings that blessing from God. And the healing. So the result of this is that the blessing of God comes through faith. What an unsurprising ending that should be to looking at this to be part of Scripture. It is those who recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, and she's saying this constantly. The Canaanite woman came, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Lord, help me. These are, the, these are the words she's using. These are messianic language. She knows exactly who this person is and she worships him as that person. But she shows us that it's those who turn to Jesus, that turn to him as hope, that receive that blessing. It's those that cry out to him. It's those people that the kingdom of God will draw in. It doesn't matter what their history is, what their heritage is, what their status is, how culture perceives them and the, and the worth. That, it doesn't even matter how we perceive them and the worth that they may have. The kingdom of God goes out to people such as that. It beckons them in, and when that faith comes and that encounter with Jesus comes, it embraces them. So who is Jesus to us this morning? Is he the one that we recognize as hope like this lady does here? Is he the one that we persistently cry out to even when we feel that he might be ignoring us and is not hearing our prayers? Is he the one that we recognize as Savior? And that we would pester him much like this lady does here. Because she gets something. She gets it. In this man is hope. And that by dialoguing with him and engaging with him and connecting with him, that hope will be brought to reality. Is that our perception of him? Is he some stranger that we sometimes might engage with? Somebody that we pray to only when it's tricky, but we don't really think anything will happen. Is he our hope? Have we given our life to him like this lady does here? Are we trusting him this morning? And I press that question, who is Jesus to us this morning? I urge us this morning, make him the person that this lady's found. That 
person of hope. And let's not leave him in the background. There are a few other things I want us to explore from this as well. One of them is the kingdom's impact. Now this, this part of of the sermon this morning is going to be a little bit heavier and I apologise for that but there are a few things that I think we need to look into that's, that, that are likely going on in these verses and um, it's important for point three as well Now, where, the first thing I want to ask is when we move on to verse 29 where is Jesus? it tells us that he is now at the lake of Galilee again now Matthew, uh, Mark sorry, talks about the, the, the same stories as well that happen in Jesus. But Mark tells us a little bit more after, the, the, after some of these verses unfolded. And he says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. I think I've pronounced Decapolis right. Have I? I'm not getting any commitment, so we're just going to go with it, okay? We'll go with it with confidence, it's right. Yeah. Okay, now what that area is, is that was a Greco-Roman area, at least I'm getting those words right, okay? A Greco-Roman area, a Gre- Greco... <laughs> it was nice, seriously, sir. It was a Greco-Roman area where it was in ha- most predominantly Gentile, Okay. Now think of the story we've just looked at, okay? Now Jesus goes to this area, okay? Now this area, Decat means ten. Polis was cities, okay? So this was a region. So there would be lots of people there, okay? And it was predominantly a Gentile area. It was, it was a Roman settlement area, okay? That Jesus had just wandered into here, okay? And it's Mark that gives us that important bit of information. Matthew leaves that about, and that's perhaps because he is still primarily focused at trying to teach Israel how it interprets Jesus, but he's pushing that quite a lot at this point as well. There's lots of debate over these verses and it's actually quite important debate. Who are these people that Jesus is now encountering? These people are bringing all of these people that require his mercy, his healing, that kingdom touch that can come from Jesus. Who are these people? There's debate about that, okay? Now the debate is this, and I'm covering this because I do think it's important. One of them is it's the lost sheep of Israel. And there are commentaries that will argue strongly that even in this region which is primarily filled with Gentiles, it's only the Jews that have gone to see Jesus here. Okay? Now they, they would argue that because they say that Jesus is quite clear. He says he's only coming for the, his mission is primarily only for the lost sheep of Israel. So consistent with that would be at this point he is ministering once more to people who are Jews. But yet he's in a Gentile area. The woman that has just been blessed by faith prior was a Gentile. But there are commentaries that strongly argue at this point it was only Jews and, 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 and they have scriptural basis for that, okay? It gets a bit shaky when it goes to latter verses as we will see shortly because the number seven is all about incorporating the Gentiles but, but yet they would argue that they weren't actually there. But, but okay. But you can, they're, they're trying to honour scripture at, at that point. The other argument, of course, unsurprisingly, is it would be the Gentiles because the kingdom is breaking out. We've seen the example of faith for this woman and here Jesus goes into a region that he's actually been several times. Jesus isn't a stranger in this region. His reputation would have spread. He's been through it a few times up to this point. That this would have been a Gentile response because there was not a significant Jewish population there. They would have been on the other side of the lake. 
This was a Greco-Roman area and an area where Jesus was knowing enough, his reputation was known enough that there would have been a response from those people to him as well. They also argue that when it says, and they've glorified the God of Israel, that this, as a Gentile people recognize and hear, the God of Israel is doing mighty acts in their presence as a Gentile people. So those are the two views that are going on. And yet Matthew makes no mention of it one way or another. But it's important nonetheless. So the question I was wrestling with through the week is, well, which is it? I decided I was going to be diplomatic with my answer to that, okay? My answer to that is, I would say it was likely both. I would say it's likely both. There is consistent narrative throughout even Matthew's gospel up to this point of Gentile people coming and experiencing healing. When Jesus goes into a region, I don't think they were checking passports and stuff to make sure of who was there. So when they hear that he has gone to this region, which is now what I'm calling the place because I'm not convinced I was pronouncing it right, the people would have responded and they would have come out. So I think we would have found, especially here, at this point, all sorts of people flocking to Jesus if they had the need that Matthew is recounting in these verses, all these people would be flocking to him. So I think you've got a bit a mix of both, which actually makes the next part all the more radical as well. And I would argue that we have to have Gentiles in this, and the reason for that is what happens next, which is the kingdom invitation. Okay? We covered in Matthew 14, that was a while ago, it was before Easter now, the messianic banquet, this invitation of God that everyone could come and be satisfied. Okay, we covered that as Jesus fed the 5,000. An interesting thing in the 5,000 was it was 12 baskets. And that was a reference, of course, to what Jesus was doing in Israel at that time. And this time it moves to seven. Seven is um, a, a number of completeness, of, of inclusion, of wholeness. Okay, so that now it's talking about, and every commentary, by the way, agrees, even if they didn't think there was any Gentiles within 100 miles, they all agree that this was for the Gentiles. That's a bit of a pickle, if they weren't there. Okay? So, all commentaries agree, this is a message for those that have been excluded, for those that had been called the dogs, for those that were the unclean, and for those that thought they could not come close to the God of Israel, for those that would have had to stand in the outer court, in the temple. For all of these people, here is a messianic banquet. That moment when they dine with the Messiah and he promises them that shalom, hope as well. They're asked again to sit down. There is that symbolism, a meal, a banquet that they're talking about. That the Messiah is a host. It talks again that everyone ate and was satisfied. All the same illustrations are coming in both meals. This meal demonstrates that invitation. An invitation from God to all of humanity. From those that would be considered the great and the clean to those that would be considered the dogs, the unwelcome. The Messiah is here and he welcomes you. This is what this meal is telling us. And all who seek him enter into that future hope of shalom. The last time I spoke about shalom, I read this um, amazing quote from Cornelius Planton, the president of Calvin Theological Seminary, who spoke of this, and he said, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation 
Injustice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which the natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and saviour opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way. So here we see, after, the, after what seems to be really uncomfortable ground to begin with, with, with the encounter of the, of the uh, gentle woman, of the Canaanite woman, this unfolding of offence, where we, we likely have Jews and Gentiles having to dine together an unheard of event where we have all the different walls and categories broken down where we have the Messiah as a host and this promise to all, to everyone that Shalom is there and that is the key thing it is for all everything I said at the start which I did in a mischievous way to set a contrast to the verses that we were about to read is true the kingdom is for all This here, that seven, is of, of inclusion, of welcome. That me, this meal declares that shalom hope for all. That the Messiah's kingdom goes everywhere to everyone. And I just want to leave us with one simple but perhaps niggling question. Who are the unclean for us? Who are those that we would maybe, if we're being really honest with ourselves, have in that category of almost like dogs? Because our culture still teaches us to perceive some people in those ways. Because guess what? Those people are invited to this banquet too. And it might be that this morning, or even this very week, God asks us to give a shalom invite to some of those. Here we see one of the amazing unfolding events in scripture that this kingdom that the Messiah is bringing is going to transform everything redefine what it means to be human what it means to be a follower of God very much redefine any kind of notion of barriers that could exclude people from hearing about the mercy and welcome of God we are now the ambassadors with that message. We take it with us. And sometimes God might ask us to take it places we don't want to go. But yet, we do so nonetheless because that meal, that hope, is for all. So rejoice in it. Because of what Jesus has done and because of who God is, we know that shalom hope. But be ready to share it with others as well. Because God desires to welcome, as um, Cornelius Plantin says, it's a creator and saviour that opens doors and welcomes in the creatures in whom he delights. And that is the people of this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these verses that we have explored this morning, verses that can seem unsettling. It can seem challenging. It can seem almost cruel. 
And yet as we consider them and reflect on them, we see that what Jesus was doing there, the challenges that he was making, and that message that is the result of those conversations, that faith in Jesus brings the blessing of God. So Father, we just pray, as a people that have been brought together in Jesus, because of Jesus, and dwell together because of the hope that we have in Jesus. That we wouldn't be a people that put up boundaries, that we wouldn't be a people that create categories of who is clean or unclean or welcome or not welcome. That we would be a people that seek to embody that shalom in the world that we live in. That we would be a people that seek to take that to others. That we would be a people that prayerfully, hopefully, pray for those around us, that much like this woman in these verses, that they would recognize Jesus as Lord and as their hope. Help us to be a people that live at this side of the resurrection, that recognize the amazing things that you have done, but also remember that mighty love that you have for those that are living in situations much like this woman would have lived in as well. And there you had that meal with the Jews and the Gentiles alike. Shalom, inclusion, welcome for all that will come after you. Maybe rejoice in it, but maybe we share it as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If I could invite our musicians back down, we're going to close our service this morning. We're going to close with a song which just 